Hello and welcome to episode 10 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gave me a reason to live and also wrecked my life. I'm your host, James Toth. As a child, I expected that once I began attending high school, I would experience the teenage rites of passage I saw on primetime sitcoms and in John Hughes movies. You know, like dating and going to the prom, pep rallies, decorating your locker, that sort of thing. Once I got there, however, I quickly learned that such customs, at least where I grew up, were non-existent. For instance, I never knew anyone who went on the kind of audition-like dates of television teenagers. Couples just paired off, or people had sex, and that was that. If you were seeing someone exclusively, it simply meant that you hung out together, frequently in groups. None of this dinner and a movie stuff. No one I ever knew got grounded. Since very few of my peers had a driver's license, who needed one when the buses and trains ran all night, I don't recall anyone ever reaching the Hollywood movie milestone of crashing their parents' car. More than anything, I expected to be tormented by jocks, but such an archetype failed to materialize. While Tottenville High School did have a football team, I never heard of anyone attending the games. This was not a reflection on the sport or the team itself, as much as the size of the student body. With an enrollment of over 4,000 students, centralized fixations tended to be elusive. Every individual scene existed as its own small ecosystem, with its own unique pecking orders, winners and losers, and stars. The bullies in my neighborhood were of the species known as the Guido, as depicted, pretty accurately, on television shows like The Sopranos and Jersey Shore, and in movies like A Bronx Tale and Saturday Night Fever. Guidos were young, mostly Italian-American boys with gelled hair who wore Cavarici pants and gold crucifix necklaces. They had names like Vinny and Dominic and Joey, and they enjoyed at my junior high school the hierarchical position I imagined was occupied in smaller, less urban, more traditionally American schools by jocks and nascent frat boys. The natural enemies of the Guido were herbs, queers, rockers, and dirtbags. I was a target because I was nominally a rocker, though I'd been on many occasions referred to as a herb, queer, and dirtbag. Because of my rocker status, as denoted by my long hair and the misfit stickers on my binder, I was subject to daily assaults on both my character and property. The standard student binders were the ubiquitous three-ring trapper keepers with the faux denim covers, A popular prank was to, quote, pop the binder of an unsuspecting herb, queer, rocker, or dirtbag, which involved sneaking up from behind and shoving the binder from the intended victim's arms, knocking it to the linoleum floor, at which point the metal rings would unclasp on impact and scatter the folder's contents all over the hallway. For extra kicks, the offending binder popper would often make it a point to tread on the spilled contents as they jogged off pointing and laughing. The Guidos referred to heavy metal as kill your mother, kill your father music. Like Beam Me Up Scotty and Play It Again Sam, this is a popular misquotation that has for whatever reason endured as a meme despite the words having never appeared, as far as I know, in the lyrics to any actual heavy metal song. I often dreamt of growing up and writing a song called Kill Your Mother, Kill Your Father, just to spite these Guidos, my sworn enemies. The closest I came to doing so was a trick I pulled in the sixth grade. I'm pretty proud of this one. I had a cassette copy of Soundgarden's Louder Than Love, which contains a song called Hands All Over. The song's lyric gave me a most diabolical idea. 
Using a double cassette deck, I spliced together and looped just the gonna kill your mother, kill your mother part, and proudly played this tape for the guidos at school, who were astonished to have their biases confirmed. Oh, I relished this. Why try to enlighten them or argue with them? Let them think I slaughtered puppies and banged my head to songs about matricide and worshipping the devil. I'd long ago given up any notions of fitting in with or even existing peacefully alongside them. I also took a lot of guff for my choice of clothes, which consisted mostly of band t-shirts. What the fuck is a red hot chili pepper? Guido would ask mockingly. A few years later, when the red hot chili peppers began having mainstream hits, these same assholes who bullied me were going around singing Give It Away and Under the Bridge. Ah, that made me so mad. I was not unique in being bullied. Even guidos were tormented by other, more popular guidos. Like most American high schools, Tottenville was a veritable food chain of abuse. It sadly occurred to me years later that the small handful of especially tough kids at the top of the pecking order who didn't have bullies tormenting them at school had bullies waiting for them at home, which was one of the reasons they became bullies in the first place. Frankie Costa, one of the toughest kids at our school, had recently returned from a stint at the juvenile detention center Spofford. Upon his release, he promptly went home and broke his father's jaw. I remember thinking at the time that if perhaps Frankie Costa had listened to more of that kill-your-mother-kill-your-father music he so loathed, he might have been content with merely living vicariously through aggressive music rather than feeling the need to engage in real-life familial violence. But that's naive. Frankie Costa's father, we later learned, was an abusive asshole who regularly beat Frankie and his brother with a belt. By all accounts, the elder Mr. Costa earned that broken jaw. In fact, he probably got off easy. Anyway, I didn't really feel a need to have friends at school, because I had Scooter to hang with back home, and he and I had a lot in common. After a fair bit of pestering, my dad agreed to drive us to the Woodbridge Mall in nearby Woodbridge, New Jersey. This was a major event, as my family typically only made the pilgrimage to Woodbridge to purchase our clothes for the upcoming school year. Given that there was no sales tax on clothes or on cigarettes, my parents had determined that these savings were worth the cost of the fuel required to make the 40-minute round trip. The Woodbridge Mall's record stores had a wide selection of tapes. In hindsight, I realized that these particular stores merely employed buyers who were more with it than the clueless ones at the stores on Staten Island. But back then, we couldn't explain why the Woodbridge Sam Goody location was always stocked with all the obscure death metal and thrash metal tapes we saw advertised in Metal Maniacs, our favorite magazine. The choices were overwhelming. These trips were an adventure, and the feeling in my stomach on the drive to Jersey was like a drug high, a first kiss, and a roller coaster rolled into one. For me and Scooter, the holy grail at the time was an album by Obituary called Slowly We Rot. This was an album that had thus far eluded us and was desired above all others. For one thing, the album was called Slowly We Rot. I mean, come on. But more than that seductive title, we were enticed by the reviews we read of the album, which described how the band's vocalist, John Tardy, did not sing using actual words, but demonic, non-lexical, guttural sounds. This alone was enough to pique our interest but the cover art depicting a decomposing corpse in a gutter, and the ad copy promising, quote, the heaviest record of all time, made procuring Slowly We Rot our top priority. Scooter saw it first. 
He leapt in front of me and grabbed the tape from the wall of cassettes, held it to my face and screamed, Ha! I made a desperate grab for it, and we began to scuffle. Whoa, whoa, what the hell's going on? demanded my dad, browsing stereo equipment nearby. It's mine, I cried, ignoring my father. But Scooter was already fending me off with a forearm pressed into my chest. Come on, just let him have the fucking thing, James, ordered my dad, embarrassed and growing agitated. But... At this, Scooter shoved me off of him and I stumbled backward, tripping onto the store's carpeted floor. We now had the attention of the store's employees. I protested. I explained to my dad that it wasn't fair, that Scooter wouldn't have even had any money if I hadn't loaned him the $10 he was going to use to buy the tape. Come on, said my dad, unsympathetically. Grow the fuck up. You can tape it off him. This was true. Scooter and I typically shared all of our music, and he would always dub tapes for me and I would dub tapes for him, but I knew Scooter wouldn't appreciate the album like I would. He was careless with his stuff. He often failed to return the tapes to their cases. He left the tapes on top of the speakers, which was a big no-no because of the magnets. He didn't bother to rewind his tapes after he was done listening to them to keep the spools tight. He often hid marijuana roaches and tabs of acid inside the inlay cards, and would forget about them for months, by which time they'd left a nasty brown residue on the artwork and lyric sheet. In contrast, my collection was museum quality, alphabetized, carefully curated and displayed. My tape collection was a shrine, a library, a body of knowledge. In spite of myself, I began to cry. I don't mean a single, discreet tear fell from my eye, like Iron Eyes Cody in that old commercial about littering, I mean, my face contorted, and I began sniffling and heaving in spite of myself. Not necessarily sobbing or weeping, but close enough to feel embarrassed, and to embarrass everyone around me. More than embarrassed, though, I felt devastated, shocked, and enraged. I wanted to kill Scooter. I also wanted to kill my dad for not taking my side in the fight. I mean, didn't he understand how important this was? I don't remember what album I did end up buying that day only that it wasn't slowly we rot. From here on out, my collection would have a gaping, obituary-sized hole. Our squabble was soon forgotten, and we got back to the business of being budding juvenile delinquents. By day, we'd practice spray-painting our tags on a giant piece of drywall in Scooter's garage, listen to music, and eat microwaved cup-o noodles. When the great cat brazenly offered her home phone number during an interview on a video magazine we liked called Hard and Heavy, we did the totally natural thing. We pranked her. I wish I could say it was some legendary crank call, but it backfired. Definitely became a pranky clowns the pranker sort of situation. I made an attempt to disguise my voice and said, This is, uh, to have Cat quickly interrupt me and say that since I couldn't even remember my own name, I was probably a drug-addled loser and that I should stop wasting her time. To the great Cat's credit, she was a really good sport about enduring our infantile mischief. She continued answering the phone each time we'd redial, leaving us increasingly more emasculated and demoralized with each call. The days were long and fun, but spending the night at Scooter's was the best. Scooter and I had a Saturday night tradition in which we would sneak out of his house at 2 a.m., immediately following the midnight broadcast of MTV's Headbangers Ball. Why we began doing this I couldn't say, except that it felt very liberating to be outdoors and walking around that late at night. The ritual went like this. Scooter would ensure the back door of his house was unlocked for us when we returned, 
and following the final video of Headbanger's Ball, we'd exit into the cool, dark evening for an adventure. It seemed like the last video broadcast on Headbanger's Ball around this time was always Man in the Box by Alice in Chains, and to this day that song reminds me of these pre-dawn prowls. Scooter and I walked the three blocks to Amboy Road barely speaking. The quiet felt sacred. I would often feel frightened walking the dark streets, imagining I saw the benevolent but spooky character Pax Cow from the movie Pet Cemetery staring at me from the darkened passenger seat window of every parked car we passed. But this fear, coupled with the crisp night air, was also exhilarating. We made it a point to stop along the way at 22 Acacia Avenue to quietly salute Iron Maiden, who coincidentally had a song bearing that title. Amboy Road, a busy thoroughfare during the day, was virtually deserted at night. Because of this, Scooter and I gleefully took turns urinating in the middle of the street. Our final destination was always the open-all-night Country Donuts, where the late-night proprietor soon came to expect us, plying us with free boxes of stale donuts, remainders of the previous day's production run that were otherwise en route to the dumpster. We walked back to Scooter's house eating day-old Boston cream donuts and French crullers by the handful, smashing one on the street or against a storefront for every one we crammed into our mouths. Our night prowls soon grew less innocent. For whatever reason, Scooter decided he wanted to collect the large camel cigarette advertisements that were posted behind the protective plexiglass at the many bus stop shelters along Highland Boulevard. I never questioned why Scooter wanted these ridiculous posters, nor the wisdom of smashing plexiglass in the middle of the night. Nevertheless, I remained a willing accomplice. Scooter located a large hammer in his parents' garage and decided it would make the perfect tool for our mission. So we don't take the poster right away, he warned me, laying out the plan. I throw the hammer and then we run. When enough time has passed, we come back and get the poster. Sounds good, I said. Scooter's plan went off without a hitch, as it did for many subsequent weeks, his collection of tacky camel cigarette posters depicting Joe Camel in various situations, growing so large he was forced to alternate them on his wall with his heavy metal posters, his room taking on a heuristic pattern of devil horns, pointy BC-rich guitars, and cartoonish commercialism. I can still hear the sound of Scooter's pitched hammer shattering the thick plexiglass, sounding like a clap of thunder, and I can still remember running in the dark, trailing Scooter to some previously established rendezvous point, where we would remain in hiding until we were sure enough time had elapsed for us to emerge and procure the object of desire from beneath the pile of shattered acrylic chips. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to be alerted about new episodes, and please tell your friends. You can find me on Twitter at JimmyJackToth, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash thetothzone. Pledge tiers are $5, 10 and $15. The upper tier gets you a lot of cool exclusive stuff, like downloadable mixtapes and various podcast-specific stuff. Plus, more stuff coming soon, so check it out. Next week, I'll tell you about my Cameron Crowe-esque boyhood as a budding child rock journalist. Also, street fighting and how I fell in love with hip-hop. Till then, this is The Toast Zone.